Welcome to episode number 95 of the Civil Engineering Podcast, the first podcast dedicated to helping civil engineering professionals succeed in work and life. I am your host, Anthony Fasano. I am a licensed professional engineer who practiced as a civil engineer, but eventually decided I wanted to focus more on inspiring engineers rather than doing the engineering myself. So since then, I've written a book called Engineer Your Own Success and have traveled the world helping engineers. And through this podcast, myself and my co-host, Chris Knutson, try to bring you information that can help you succeed in every episode. I've also had the honor of authoring the American Society of Civil Engineers Careers and Leadership column for the past few years. Here's a short preview of this episode in which I'll be speaking with Peter Deming, senior partner at Muser Rutledge Consulting Engineers. Here in New York City, we have uh, many jobs in the neighborhood. We have several people who work outside all time. A lot of our younger staff have to come and go to do short inspections. So we need them to be safe in the field, wear their field boots and their hard hats and their vests. But when they come in the office, they really don't want to be trekking around in, in heavy boots full of mud. We have a, a locker room, 100, I'm going to send them 60 lockers or so, a place to change your clothes, shut the door, lock it up, and uh, come and go during the day. My co-host Chris and I both believe that in order to be the best civil engineer you can be, you must consistently get better. Get better at your craft, your people skills, and as a leader. And that's why we publish this free podcast to help you do just that. In this episode, I'm bringing you with me to the offices of Muser Rutledge Consulting Engineers in New York City to sit down with senior partner Peter Deming. And what we're going to talk about is interesting. We're going to talk about the physical office layout of a company and how it impacts both productivity and culture. I think you're really going to enjoy this one. This is a topic that you might not really consider as important as it really is until you hear Peter talk about it. Peter Deming is a geotechnical engineer. He joined Muser Rutledge in 1979, so he's been there for some time. He managed the Soil Mechanics Laboratory for eight years, but in 1998, Peter was promoted to partner. Peter's project experience include design of earthwork, deep excavations, and the excavation process, hydraulic barriers for groundwater control foundations, and waterfront structures. Many of his projects are located outside of the New York metropolitan area. Before we get started, this is a free show and our sponsors help us keep it free. So I want to ask you to please support our sponsors. And now I'd like to recognize our sponsor for this episode, PPI, by asking you, have you been looking for a way to advance your engineering career? We'll stick around later for my exam prep tips and tricks. I'll be sharing info on where to find the best resources to prepare you for your licensure exam, including an exclusive 20% discount available only to our listeners. Thanks to our sponsor, PPI. You won't want to miss it. I also want to briefly mention that we are currently running a very special membership drive for our Engineering Management Institute professional community until the end of August 2018. After working with thousands of engineering professionals through my talks, podcasts, courses, and coaching, one thing became very clear to me. Most engineers want to go into management. They want to make more money. They want to become effective leaders and eventually reach the executive level or even own their own company. But the problem is a lot of them don't know how and they don't have time to sit through lengthy workshops or in-person classes. 
They need targeted information and guidance to help them develop the skills they need to move forward in their careers. This challenge facing so many engineering professionals is exactly why we created the Engineering Management Institute membership to give you the skills and support you need through a focused, fluff-free, on-demand model. And now, until the end of August, if you visit engineeringmanagementinstitute.org, on the top of the site, you'll see an orange button. Click for the upcoming webinar. Click that button, and right below the video, there will be a link to our professional membership registration page, and you won't believe the price we're offering till the end of August for everything you get. The monthly PDH webinars, the managerial video tips that we send out every other week that are one minute long, easy to digest and put back into work for you in your job. We're all really focused on that in the community. We want to give you things that you can use, not go to a seminar all day and then not transfer it back. So please go to engineeringmanagementinstitute.org, click on the upcoming webinar button, and right below the video, you can check out the offer that we have going right now. Please do it now because it's not going to last long from when this episode is published. All right, now let's dive into our civil engineering conversation of the week with Peter Deming. Civil Engineering Podcast. Civil Engineering Podcast. All right, now I'd like to welcome Peter Deming. Peter is a senior partner at Muser Rutledge Consulting Engineers based here in New York City. I'm, I'm here at their office with Peter. Peter, welcome to the Civil Engineering Podcast. Hi, good. Thank you, Anthony. So, Peter, we're going to talk a little bit today about office productivity, culture, but before we get into those things, maybe you can just tell our listeners a little bit about the company and your own career path. Well, Muser Rutledge Consulting Engineers has been around for 100 years practicing solely in soil mechanics, underground structures. And it's had to morph along with the technologies, but it has been a very strong and consistent firm in staying solely with that practice, has not spread out of that narrow field. As the field has expanded, so have we. I joined the firm right after graduate school here in New York City, it's 1979, and uh, was fondly taken care of with good projects to do, exciting work, uh, challenges all the time. And it made me stick with this firm. And mm. I've been here since 1979. Wow. And, and a lot of our people have been here for most of their career and moved up through the organization and uh, taken on challenges. And, you know, the big city, the big challenges, those are things that interest many of us. And uh, that's why we stay here because the work is good. Sure. And I know we've talked about this in the past, you know, I think technical knowledge is important throughout the civil engineering field, as well as here at Muser, like we said, you know, you have to have that technical background. So your background, of course, is geotechnical, correct? Yes. It's, I've been practicing since 79, as I said, and um, it takes a long time for it to really sink in and for you to see a wide range of needs, fine-grained soils, coarse-grained soils, compaction with soils, excavation with soils. There's a wide range of things you see. It takes experience, time, projects to build that experience. And really, when you have to address a challenge, figuring out the problem comes from experience and having had something similar or near similar in a past project. Sure. So the geotechnical piece has been very interesting because it's it's constantly changing. Every site's different. Every requirement for construction, excavation or or load transfer, et cetera, is a big 
makes something different on every job. And it really experiences what really drives our office layout a little bit, but experiences what it takes in, in geotechnical engineering, because if you haven't seen it, you're not that familiar and you don't know how to conceive of it or address it. It takes a long time for it to sink in. I mean, for me, it did. Sure. I, I didn't walk out of school and know everything. I'll say that. Yeah, well, I don't know. My wife's a geotechnical engineer, and I remember when she was younger and in the field a lot, it was always a different conversation at the dinner table in terms of what did you hit underground today? It was like, I felt like I was watching a movie. It was everything would change every day. But I know that's part of what makes this whole industry exciting. Well, Peter, I was here probably six months ago or so, and you gave me a nice tour of your office here. And you spent some time explaining to me how you laid the office out. There was quite a lot that you considered in terms of your staff and the productivity and the planning. And which is one of the reasons I reached back out to you because, you know, I hadn't really thought that much about that or, you know, talked to many executives about that and some of the, the firms that I visited. So I wanted to come back and chat about that a little bit more. Maybe we can just start by talking about that. Did there come a time where you said you want to you know, change some things here? You want to make things work a little bit better? How did that all come about? 15 years ago, we had an office across town and it was laid out fairly well. Uh, I had all the partners in, in, in a hallway. Their executive assistants sat across from the partner offices. And then there was a big room filled with drafting boards and cubicles. It was pretty good. Uh, it was cleaner than the previous office. Uh, but we were there for 20 years and, and had an opportunity to move. And uh, so I was put in charge of, of moving and uh, working with the architect to lay out the new space. And the new space had beautiful windows on one wall. And I tried to preserve that space for people, not to give it to offices. And so we said, OK, we're going to try to make the, the window wall public space a conference room. Uh, had to have a few hallways. And we had a few back spaces that were kind of unresolved when we really designed them and we moved in. And, you know, it didn't work. We were there for 10 years. The public space on the, on the windows did not work. And the, some of the other spaces were very awkward. So we, we decided to move to this floor, same building, different floor, because we had more people, needed more space. Mm -hmm. And so we kind of switched things around and, and really said, what is the focus with the new space? And that was to provide distribution of leadership throughout the firm, experienced people working and having their offices near less experienced people. Mm. Um, we ended up giving the windows to experienced people. We, we really didn't find the public space at the window helped or did anything. Okay. We tried to develop more areas where people could communicate and smaller conference rooms. So we, we invoked several different things in the office layout. Some of it pretty architecturally standard, I would assume. We had primary aisles and secondary aisles, and the cubicles are off the secondary aisles. Primary aisles are wider, and they have, they have file cabinets to line the aisle. Great way to use space sure. to have a file cabinet row on an aisle. Although we're not using file cabinets <laughs> as much anymore. It's clearly the, the servers are taking all that, but... But we still have paper files in some projects. We created three different cubicle sizes. And, you know, we have the younger engineers in a small cubicle. And all the cubicles really are laid out to the column grid. We have to work with the column grid. Sure. But the smaller cubicles are, don't have a column. They are 
square corners, and they therefore are very efficient. There's a, it's a desk, it's an L-shaped desk, it's an entrance, it's a, a four walls, and it's pretty darn efficient. I really like them myself. Uh, the medium cubicles are with columns. They're on the other side of the, the row, and those columns take up uh, odd spaces, and so they make the layouts a little different. We require a chair in each of those. It's, it's a bit of a way for the, the medium-level engineer to have a visitor right. in their own office, sure. even though it's just a cubicle. Uh, but it's big enough, and it's kind of laid out because it's got that column, which forces some oddity. Repeat on the grid, but it forces yeah. that oddity. And then we have the senior uh, people cubicles, which are really laid out to the window grid, and they're on the windows, and they are aligned with that system. And they some of them have two chairs and a table for visitors, so they can have working space and get together in their office with more than just one visitor. And we have partner offices, which all have a, a visitor table, three chairs, plus the desk. So it's really has a door. It's the only one with a door in the sure. partner office. It becomes a conference call center. Okay. Oftentimes the partners are in on the conference calls and they happen in those offices. So quite, and we need privacy in many of our conversations. So sure. the partner doors and those partner offices are sprinkled throughout the office. We don't have partner roles. That's what like I was going to ask 30 you years ago. The locations of people are, you know, is it department? Is it discipline? Like, how did you sit people? Or well, it? we do have a, a, a tight-knit CAD group. Okay. Uh, they, uh, eight to ten people. We have a section where they all work together. The walls between their cubicles are lower, so the CAD manager can see all the staff in, okay. in that area. And, of course, they're working with each other on um, producing large jobs. So the communication between the CAD operators is, is very necessary. We have a laboratory and we have instrumentation and yep. those are somewhat groups that specialize in that. And so they have common office areas near the lab, sure. a common office area near the instrumentation uh, warehouse of supplies. And that allows them to communicate in their specialty but outside of that, we really have sprinkled geotechnical and structural engineers and the engineer level one, two, three, four, five, six, and then the senior sevens and eights uh, and the partners and sprinkled them throughout the office okay. co-mingled. So that right. we have structural engineers working next to geotechnical yeah, and, and engineers with 15 years experience working next to people just down the aisle that have you know two years or, or less. And... You know, kind of like the coffee room where we, we want people to meet each other and to talk about experiences and overhear what challenge they're trying to face. Uh, oftentimes you'll, you'll say, oh, I had a job like that. And, and just by volunteering your experiences, people share quite a bit. And sharing is where we think the office layout needs to take us. We can't sit in a cubicle and gain experience right. from others around us. We have to be able to see them and know them and know what they did and talk with them and, and sharing that experience. And also recommendations. You know, we did this job. Uh, someone else really did it more than I, but I think it was very similar. You ought to talk to them about what they did to solve a similar problem. And that's why we have the layout sprinkled so that people yeah. will become familiar. So there's a couple other um, things that I remember from when I was here. You have a library. Can you talk about that in terms of the, the codes and stuff? Yeah, well, we... We always had a library. When I first joined the firm, 
it was really a file room. It was very awkward and hard to get in. When we moved to the place with Partner Row, the library was really a conference room. The walls were lined with books. It grew into two rooms with two walls lined with books. Historic information, for example, the Corps of Engineers has, a, has volumes about the Port of New York and right. what, was, what was being used for at various slips and locations and how deep the water depths were and right. what the kind of structure was. And as we do a lot of waterfront structures in the port, we need to know that history. And so that type of thing was being collected and held. A lot of specs from different states, construction, civil engineering, but earthworks primarily, because we, we don't just keep the most modern spec. If we do a job that has a problem, something built in 1955, we want to go back to the specs from 1955. So we were growing this library of history. Uh, when we moved here, we in this space, we needed two floors. So we created a central stair and we tried to make an open feeling. Uh, we have a conference table there where you can uh, meet for lunch and it's right next to what we call the library. It's really several stacks. Sure. Uh, and the stacks are filled with these history and uh, reference books, bound books primarily. And so we have a small reading area. We have the conference table, lunchroom, stairway, big open feeling, and it's quite, quite pleasant. Uh, and someone's responsible for maintaining the codes and updating the library? Uh, oh, yes. We have, we have a library committee and we have a librarian person who, geologist, who's also okay. in charge of library. And, and, and that person is also helping this uh, organized scanning of uh, loose records. Okay. We, many years ago, people would collect things of interest, take clippings out of ASCE journals, uh, magazine articles about technical details. Okay. And those files were incorporated into the library as partners retired. We have a very strong set of files collected by Jim Gould, who was a, a real guru in geotechnical engineering. And over his career here at Muser, I think we collected 10 file drawers of information and those are being scanned and indexed and made available. Wow. They really show the progression of, of soil mechanics sure. in, in certain fields. He was really interested in, in tracking and, and knowing how things were done. Part of the way he resolved conflicts on dispute review boards, et cetera. Sure, yeah. And kind of what I was getting at there was anytime I think you have some kind of common initiative like that, if you're trying to build something like that in your firm, you're going to need to have, whether it's a committee and ultimately someone responsible for it, because otherwise things like this, you put, you know, there's a library with some books in it and it doesn't get updated. It's not the best possible use for everybody because there's no one really taking care of it. So if you're thinking that some of these things are good ideas, you need to understand the mechanism for how they're going to be maintained, essentially. And I think that's important. The other thing that I remember is, of course, your firm does a lot of field work. So I remember there was a locker room here. There's a locker room. Well, field work is part of geotechnical engineering. Yep. You know, you uh, sometimes I don't go to the site. You know, it might be in another state, and I don't go. And I feel bad about that. I like to go to the sites, but basically to get the job done, oftentimes you need to do field work. And when you're building with soils, there's a lot of field work control of the work. So. Here in New York City, we have uh, many jobs in the neighborhood. We have several people who work outside all time. A lot of our younger staff have to come and go to do short inspections. So we need them to be safe in the field, wear their field boots and their hard hats and their vests. But when they come in the office, they really don't want to be traipsing around in, in 
heavy boots full of mud. We have a, a locker room, 100, I'm going to send 60 lockers or so, a place to change your clothes, shut the door, lock it up, and uh, come and go during the day. It's not really for those people who are assigned to the field and stay on job sites sure. all day long. It's really for those who come and go. I think it, it uh, helps us keep the office clean. We don't like muddy boots coming in, not only because it's dust, but you don't know what's in that dust. Sure. You don't really need it in the office environment. Sure. But uh, also, they come in and they go, and they, they are suited well for both environments. They, you know, they want to be professional in the office, and they need to be suited for the field. Happens in winter, too, you know, heavy jackets and sure. gloves and hard hat liners and all that, too. Yeah, sure. I mean, I think it's great. I mean, I think it also t- really takes into account the employee. I mean, when I, I remember doing my own engineering work or surveying and then coming into the office, and it was either like, I'm just wearing jeans for the day. But then, of course, if I get a client that comes on another project, I mean, they don't care about your field work. You know, you have to be representing you yourself. Wanna, you have to dress for success. Exactly. If you're in the office, you want to be in the office. Exactly. But it was yeah. once, but I remember I would come in with my clothes and I'm going in the bath trying to, you know, it's nice to have a locker room in an area where you feel comfortable that I'm going to be able to go in. I'm going to be able to then you get my professional. Yeah. Well, uh, let me on. say one thing we did different in this office, and it's worked well, is uh, we've created group offices for those staff that are really assigned to field work, that their primary role with the firm is inspection. Mm-hmm. When they're not on inspection, we have them doing office support or project work. And we have five guys assigned to an area that has three desks, all in one large cubicle. They know each other. They all have a phone. They have voicemail. They have a a computer drop-in spot. They know where they're coming on a rainy day. Right. So they feel they have a home. But we don't have five desks uh, or six. We only have three. And that saves. It's an economical thing. They understand that sharing is needed because they're hardly there. They're really there, yeah. yeah. But that that has, I think, worked very well. I, I had a lot of pushback on that uh, when we developed this space. We never had it before. We had a lot of desks with without people sitting in them. So that has that's a difference, and I think it's psychologically working well. They feel they know where they belong, and we know where to find them on a rainy day if they're <laughs> not in the field. You know where to you know where to look. And that's been very helpful to putting them to work, making them efficient sure. on their downtime when field jobs are not operating. Yeah, I mean, I think as we talk, you know, you kind of think through it. To me, a lot of these things and thoughtful layout of the office, it removes like uncertainty, right? Like if you're a field person and it's raining, what am I going to do? You know what you're going to do. You have your spot, you go there. Yeah. If you're in the field right. in the morning, you have a client meeting in the afternoon, you don't have to worry about bringing clothes and this and that. I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to go to my locker. I'm going to get changed, right? And in the world we live in today, there's enough things to worry about. So anything, any way you can make it easier for your employees to feel comfortable and at home here, because they probably spend more time in the office like most, you know, most firms than you do at home. So I think all that's great. One other thing I just want to mention and, you know, probably of more interest to the, the female listeners, but I know you also have an area for nursing mothers. I remember that because my wife did, as a geotech engineer, had to do that at the office, had to bring in her stuff and everything. And so, again, it's just another, you know, thoughtful way to give, make everyone comfortable, you know, regardless of who yeah, you Well, are. it's a New York City code requirement when you have a certain number of employees in one space. But we have what we call it the lactation room. Mm-hmm. It has a refrigerator, it has a sink, has a chair. It's, great. it's quiet and comfortable. But we also use it uh, every year we give flu shots, and we use oh. it as a private space wow. for the nurse giving flu shots to uh, meet with the employee and roll up that shirt sleeve or whatever sure. and get that shot. 
so you know it serves a little bit of a larger function. And we let the the nursing mothers manage the room, the key, who's in when. It takes care of itself. I'll yeah. say that. No, it's great. It's got maid service, of course, but it takes care of itself pretty much. So moving beyond the physical aspect of the office, I mean, I think in terms of the word culture, surely the physical layout of the office plays into that. There's no doubt about that. But as a leader in a firm, someone who's been with the same firm for a long time, when you say the word culture, what, do you, what comes to mind for you? Here, it's communication. It's Let me say, I, I did a job five years ago where I had to visit a company that was designing a nuclear power plant. We were designing the hole for the power plant, okay. and we would go to their offices for two or three days. And you walk in, and it is quiet. It's dead quiet. And the cubicle walls were seven feet high, and everybody's sitting in a cubicle staring at a screen, and there's very little communication. And one of my associates was with me on one meeting. He said, I couldn't work here. It's too quiet. It's just no one's talking to each other. And here in our firm, we want people talking. As I said, right. that experience sharing leadership, people trying to make sure they're doing the right thing on a project and asking for support. One of the items we have is cubicle walls are five feet high. So when you're sitting at your desk and you have your screen, you can actually have a bookshelf above, and you've got pretty much privacy. It's not silent for right. labor, but it's it's not so tall. When you stand up, you can see over the walls. Right? You can see other people standing and moving. But you're sitting down, and you have somewhat a, a feeling of, I'm in my space. You can hang your diploma on the wall and your PE license, et cetera. The wall, though, on the hallway is four foot six. It's just a six-inch drop. So when someone's walking down the hall and you're in your cubicle, you can see them coming because the wall isn't too high. Right. And you can you know they're approaching, and if they stop, then you're not abruptly interrupted. Hey, all right, you see them coming, you kind of get the sense that they're coming. This drop wall six inches costs us nothing. It's actually a nice-looking architectural feature, I feel, and it, it allows people to walk by and then also, because it's four foot six, most people can have a conversation without trying to enter your personal space. You can stand in the hall, talk to a person. The wall is not a barrier. And I find I was just uh, this morning, in fact, two guys standing talking about project and coordinating the last piece of the work. And they're doing that from their different offices at one person's office, not, I think, because they... Uh, needed a conference room, but they were comfortable because of the communication space over the short wall, the private space available to the person was allowing them to have communication there. It's quick. You don't have to, hey, we got to go to a conference room and shut the door. Private space, five foot wall, public space, four foot six. It allows that communication to occur without being intrusive to your private room. Mm. And then that's, you know, a lot with those smaller offices that don't have a visitor chair. Although a lot of those people ask for a stool, we bought a lot of dentist uh, stools to have in there. To have and in their space, they can slide it under the desk, and then someone can step in and sit down. And and uh, a lot of people saw that and said, "Hey, I want one of those." But it's it's their private space, and we respect that they need time to think. They need you know, we're asking them to produce computer models and sure. writing and, and yeah. analysis, and they have to focus. So we want to give them private space to do that. Some offices have hot desks, right, where you can come and plug in and be connected and unplug, and tomorrow maybe it's a different desk. Right. We assign cubicles. People know their space. 
they keep their repeat items there. They, uh, it is private to them. We don't. You know, they have a lock on their desk, so they can keep items that they sure. don't want others to get at. They have a place that they know is theirs. Sure. And, and in terms uh, of context, Peter, just so the audience knows, this is your headquarters. Do you have other offices, or what's the breakdown? We have one office in Washington D.C., which is very small. Okay. Trying to grow that with uh, more engineering. We started it with inspection services for our D.C. work. But we're moving that into more analysis and engineering. We've connected them to the server here in New York so they can get access to files and the analysis software. And we have uh, 160 people, 150 engineers here in the New York City office. Okay. We feel that's a very strong point. It's part of our experience sharing base to have so many people with varied experiences in one spot. I don't know that there's any other geotechnical group as large as ours in one spot in sure. the nation. I know that there are firms bigger than ours, sure. but they're distributed. But in one and, spot, and, right. and I think that their their experiences are also distributed. And while they can reach out and share, and I, and I know they do because we work with them, here it's a little easier when it's down the hall, um, it's at the coffee room and other people volunteer information and they, know what's going on because they're here sure. at the central location. In terms of the culture, and it sounds, of course, like your culture here is really based on, like you said, communication that was thought out in the physical layout. It's thought out in the things you do. And so, you know, for those of you out there listening, I mean, listen, culture may not be the same at every firm in terms of what the culture is based around. Here, Peter happens, Dave, happen to be very clear that it's based around communication. So, you know, one important part of culture, obviously, is understanding the culture and the fabric of, of your company, which could vary from place to place. And then I think probably in the next part of it is making sure that you do the best you can to communicate that culture and to make it easy for people to realize that culture, which obviously we've been talking about here in terms of the layout and some of the things we do. But Peter, in terms of just communicating the culture, is it something that you, now, whether it's a new employee or just people, is it something that at the leadership kind of makes people understand that, listen, we want to communicate here and we're going it, you know, we're trying to make it easier for you to do that. Is it something you specifically need to talk about or is it just well, something you I, act on? I think that how the firm uh, works with it is different based on different people. And we have conference rooms. Most of them have a large TV screen where we plug in and people cooperate with an, reviewing analysis or reviewing a written document putting together an opinion statement, say, on a claim. And it takes more than one brain to do that, one, more than one person. I personally have asked my engineers at all levels to write down what they do on a project. Let's say they run an analysis and they use a computer program and there's assumptions and there's findings from that analysis and there's a graphical presentation. I make that their product. They have to communicate that to me. They have to write it. I review it, I make sure it's thorough and it's complete, and I don't just co-op that into the report, I attach it to the report. So that person is signing that document, it's their work product. And maybe a two-year engineer, now they're writing six or eight pages of English and it has to be correct and, and that's right. part of learning how to you know, get to the end game where we all really communicate by writing. But it's their product and I think that they really enjoy doing that and the challenge of doing that. And then we build those documents into a report which may capture the primary things. And the team puts that 
primary report together, but the details are still attached in those memos that are signed by the individual staff members. Sure. That communication in those conference rooms with the TV, and we're finding a lot of use when we communicate with others in other offices. And there we're looking on the screen and, and uh, seeing things on screen, plans or excavations or photographs of collapses. And we're talking on the phone and so we can communicate clearly with other people in other offices. I know a lot of people are doing that. We're promoting that quite largely from within and sure. it works well if, if your client is connected. It works very well. So we have put TVs in most of the offices, uh, most of the conference rooms, but we're getting mediocre use. I think people had to get familiar with it and they had to have a need, but we do make it available. And I see it getting used more and more with time as people get comfortable with it. All right, once again, I am here in New York City with Peter Dunning, senior partner at Muser Rutledge Consulting Engineers. We've talked quite a bit here about productivity and office layout, and then of course, tied it into the culture of the firm. And what we're going to do now is just take a short break. And I'm going to come back in a minute and finish up by just peppering Peter with a few professional development questions in our CE Hot Seat segment. Civil Engineering Podcast. Civil Engineering Podcast. Now it's time for our Civil Engineering Hot Seat segment, where we're going to pepper Peter with a few professional development questions. Our hot seat today is brought to you by our sponsor, PPI. If you've been thinking of getting your civil PE license, but you're unsure of where to start, now is the perfect time to check out PPI2Pass.com. PPI has helped over 4 million engineers, including me, pass their licensure exam and become leaders in their fields. Best of all, PPI has exam prep material to prepare you for any civil PE discipline, including construction, transportation, structural, and others. Visit ppi2pass.com to order your exam prep materials and take one step closer to advancing your career. That's PPI, the number two, pass.com. I also have a 20% off promo code available to listeners of this podcast. Use promo code TCE8 on PPI's website for an exclusive 20% discount. Again, that's promo code TCE, stands for The Civil Engineer, and the number eight, TCE8. All right, we're back with Peter Deming, and we are going to put Peter here on the civil engineering hot seat. Peter, first question, are there any specific rituals that you practice every day? For example, do you have a specific morning ritual or lunchtime ritual something that you do consistently on a daily basis that contributes to you being a successful professional. I do, and that is really to make a list of what I want to accomplish in a day. I use a three-by-five index card oftentimes because I can keep it in my pocket. I can get a fresh one every day. I like to make a list of the things I need to do, the accomplishments, and I really enjoy the next morning uh, drawing a line through the ones I got done and then I transfer the ones I didn't get done to a fresh card. It's great on the weekends, too. I, and it's a big list for what I do on, on my Saturday and Sunday. But I do that during the week, too. So you do that daily? Daily. Make a list for what I want to get done. I used to be able to go jogging. And I thought, you know, while I'm jogging, I'm thinking. It was always planning my day. After a knee injury, I couldn't go jogging anymore. But I, I do this now over coffee and and I lay it out every day. What I need to accomplish, what's immediately in front of me for my deliverables to my clients and internal to the firm, what I need to accomplish. Don't always get it all done, sure. which is why I transfer it to a new card the next day. Keep it on the list. 
Just to follow up on that, because I, I get people all the time that tell me that the list, the planning is important. In terms of doing the planning, these are things that I would imagine are either top of mind, something you have on your desk, something you're, is it just everything that's come at you kind of put into one area? I mean, I would imagine, I'm just wondering where you get all the, these things. From. Well, I, I think I make them up. I decide what I need to get accomplished okay. and move a project forward or to get something I'm doing to the next level. I sat down two weeks ago with my computer open and I made a list, to-do list, you know, and I put the date on it and I saved it and I printed it. it but I, you know, I haven't looked at that in two weeks. It's too big. a. a, a right. I'm better off with a three by five index card every day. Gotcha. Going through what's hitting me today, what things. do I need to get done? Come bouncing balls in the air and keeping them all moving. Sure. And uh, you know, passing it on to staff, asking people to get certain things that they're accomplishing and needing to accomplish. So it's a good tool for me to, to take care of immediate demands. And so I would imagine that one part of doing that, a critical part of doing that, is making sure that you have the right three to five things on the card. Well, there's there's ten things on a card. Ten things. There may be fifteen things. In on terms a card. of like, there's priority. two sides to every card too. You <laughs> yeah. Know? And, you know, oftentimes I'll list the things I have to get. I have to finish this, I have to finish that, and right. get to the end goal. Some of those intermediate deliverables that build to the final product are on the cards uh, so I can see the structure. Gotcha. All right, next question. What is one book that you either recommend to engineers regularly or just one book that you found to be extremely helpful in your professional or personal development? Something, one that stands out. I'm going to disappoint you here. When I was in grad school... Or geotechnical specialty. There were a few books, but mostly it was loose papers, a lot of papers. And our professors pulled the best papers forward, the ones that really seemed to, you know, meet theory and, and have a good understanding of the end product. When I was growing up, I lived overseas, didn't have television, which I'm glad about. I rarely watch television now. But I wasn't really a big reader. I was more of a, of a graphic uh, you know, drawing and, and doing things with my hands. And in college, I picked up The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings. Oh, wow. And that really changed my, my desire to read. Uh, it was such an interesting and different story. I think I, I read now because I enjoy the words on the page. The comprehension is uh, I, I can read and really let it sink in. I understand it. But I don't really have an engineering text no, I mean that's, that I use and, and, a, and a technical book that I recommend to people. Sure, it doesn't. It hasn't clicked with me. It's I work from a basis of of all those many technical articles that have been produced. The gems, the ones that really have living power, are really my my best single read. No, I think that's great. I mean, me personally, I've also developed a habit at night of reading fiction, which has been really helpful for me overall. And it's helped me to be, get better at reading like nonfiction when I have to, when I need to scale and I need to read. Yeah. So, you know, I, I enjoy fiction. Yeah. I just finished a book that hardly used the word the. It was like every word in that book <laughs> mattered. He was, the author was so precise in everything that it was a fiction book. Yeah. I, would, I said, my God, he doesn't use all those interconnecting is, the, they. Wow. It was really a great book, uh, very packed full of ideas and concepts and conversations. I love writing. Technical writing is one of the things I produce. And I'm realizing the word the is a waste, a waste of a word. You can also you can usually substitute a different word for the word the. Sure. So anyway, a, a single book, no. But learning to read, learning to comprehend, and learning to write, extremely important to an engineering career. Extremely. Yeah. Two questions left. First one, if you think back on your career, 
of the managers that you've worked for? I'm sure a couple of them stood out, one stood out, whatever it may be. For those managers that stood out that you really enjoyed working for, what was it that made them stand out? Are there certain characteristics or skill sets that jump to mind? That uh, The ones that I work for are, I would say, they accepted the way I did things. They pushed a little bit, but they knew I wasn't them, and they accepted the way I did things. A quick story. I was pulled into a room, one of the partner offices, I'm going to say six years experience, and they gave me a dictaphone. They said, you're <laughs> typing on a keyboard. You can't type. You have to dictate. We can't move fast enough if we just type on a keyboard. And, and they didn't realize that I'm using a word processor and not a typewriter. They didn't right. realize that when I was using my fingers, I was writing. I wasn't typing. I was writing. Words are coming out of my brain onto the paper. They pushed against that, right? Gave me the dictaphone. I couldn't get used to a dictaphone. But they let me move into the keyboard skills. And pretty soon, here we are today, everybody has a keyboard. Everybody's writing. No one's typing. And it's really, they, they allowed us to move in that direction. I pushed for it. They didn't understand at the beginning, but they started to understand and supported it. And we really moved along into where we are today. Hmm. Uh, so I think it's not being uh, fixed and saying, you got to do it my way, but saying, here's where I want to go. And we're going to let you get there. Put me in a, a, some parameters, right? Sure. Uh, can't take forever. Right. Dictaphone's faster. Right. Uh, so it made me, you know, type 60 words a minute and make them all count. But uh, I think the fact that they recognized I needed freedom to do it, I needed the guidance, what needed to get done, but the freedom of how to get it done. I hear you there because I'm, I know that there are many good dictating tools today. Of course, Google, you can open it up with a microphone and type. And I still, if I'm writing an article, I feel like part of when I'm typing, I'm thinking. Like it's just the process of the actual typing is helpful for me. So I think it depends on everyone. But I think from a leadership's perspective, that's really pointed advice in that, you know, some people may be able to get something done in a way that you're not even aware of more effectively than not. So, you know, be open and, and you know, hear them out. All right. I've got one final question. We call it the civil engineering career elevator advice question. If you got into an elevator with an up and coming civil engineer, you had about 30 to 40 seconds with him or her and had to give him or her career advice in that short period of time, what would it be? It is because I give this advice quite a bit. It happened to me, and I had to recognize it. Understand the terms in geotechnical and in any, I think in civil engineering, we have a lot of terms sure. specific to our industry. Sure. And they don't always make sense. If you don't understand them, you can't memorize them. You have to understand the terms. So my advice usually is when you're reading a technical document, if there's a word you don't get, don't skip over it. You have to sit back, think about it, understand what it means, in order to move forward and truly understand what you're reading, you got to understand the terms. And there are some that are tricky, uh, but you really move forward with an understanding, not memory. And so understanding the terms, because uh, there's a sure. lot of confusing terms. I read a book, a novel. Someone's got a name in the book that I don't quite, it's not Robert, it's some strange name. Right. I make it up in my mind what it means, and I just, every time I see that name, I, I sound it out in my brain, the what I made up for that word. It's not, maybe not the right thing. Sure. But that's how I interpreted that person's name throughout the novel. Right. You can't do that in engineering. Right. You have to understand that term. You can't just think you understand. You have to understand that term. And there are a lot of very unique terms that we have to uh, struggle with. And I'm talking first five or six years. 
This right. is where my idea for having a graphic dictionary yeah. of terms to help people communicate on the same basis of understanding comes from. It, understand the terms. Yeah, I mean, even for me, you know, when I started as a civil engineer, I started as an intern in high school because my friend's father had a small surveying firm. So I was in the field for summers, just with a rod walking around. I was like, this is, I kept saying to myself, is this really engineering? I mean, I'm sweating, I'm in the prickers, I'm standing here with a rod. But in terms of the technical background of projects, I learned a tremendous amount because I was staking out parking lots and drainage systems. I saw them being constructed. And when I got five years down the road and I was sitting down with a client saying, well, you know, we're concerned about this part of the site. And I could say, oh no, when they get in there, they're gonna be able to build it this way. It's a game changer in terms of understanding the terms and the technical background of what you're working on. And so there's no doubt that in today's day and age, engineers need to be more well-rounded. We spoke about this offline before we started today in terms of selling and doing different things. But all that, as a preface to all that, if you don't understand the technical terms and the technical jargon, you won't be able to excel in those other areas. It'll be very difficult for you. So it's all about communication and using the right words and understanding what they mean. I really don't get it when one of my engineers says the cement. So no, it's concrete. <laughs> cement is only one ingredient in concrete. It shows a lack of, of thoroughness. I know they understand what they're talking about. Right. But it shows a lack of thoroughness and a lack of caring and uh, correcting that all the time. Uh, you need to use the proper terms to communicate. Sure. Well, Peter Deming, user Relish Consulting Engineers, thank you for spending some time with us here and sharing some of your experience and wisdom to our listeners of the Civil Engineering Podcast. We cool. appreciate it. Anthony, thank you for your interest. I hope you enjoyed the conversation with Peter Deming of Muser Rutledge on a topic that isn't often talked about, but I think is very important. Before we wrap this one up, I do want to remind you that we're currently running a professional membership drive for our Engineering Management Institute professional community. What is it? It's a community of engineers that are very motivated in becoming the best managers and leaders they can be. We do monthly webinars, we have a private forum, and we send out a lot of premium content to our members like our engineering managers minute videos. Those are one minute videos that I shoot myself and send out every other week with one management tip. You don't have time to go to eight hour seminars, but you have time to watch one minute videos or engage in 45 minute webinars at lunch once a month, or just pop onto the forum and ask a question. That's what this is all about. It's helping you become a better engineering manager and leader on demand on your own time when you need it. So to access the special offer, which goes till the end of August, you can go to engineeringmanagementinstitute.org forward slash membership. Or if you can't remember that, just go to engineeringmanagementinstitute.org and the top of the website, click the button that says upcoming webinar. When it takes you to the page with the video, click the orange button right below the video to get to the membership drive details and registration page. Do it if you're listening now because it's not going to last for much longer. All right. Remember that you can find the show notes for this episode at civilengineeringpodcast.com. Look for episode number 95. There you'll find a summary of the key points that Peter and I discussed today in our conversation, as well as links to any of the resources, websites, or books mentioned during the episode. Until next time, I wish you all the best in your civil engineering career endeavors. 
Thank you for listening to the Civil Engineering Podcast. Be sure to visit civilengineeringpodcast.com where you can listen to past episodes and also submit your project to be featured on the show. We also invite you to visit our main website at engineeringcareercoach.com and download a free three-part video series created specifically for engineers to help you best utilize LinkedIn for networking, improve your communication and speaking skills, and also help to develop your leadership abilities. Now is the time to engineer your own success.